we got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the dim. It go down. It go down in the dim. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the early hours of April 15, 1912, wind whipped across the deck of a British cruise liner. A bone-chilling shiver ran down the spines of the ship's terrified passengers as they flooded out of the cabin. They had been roused from their beds by the sound of a terrible metal crunch. The staff had sprinted up and down the ship's hallways, alerting the passengers to a startling development in the liner's maiden voyage. The unsinkable Titanic was sinking. 24-year-old Violet Jessup stepped out onto the deck in an almost dreamlike state. She saw women sobbing as the ship's officers shepherded them away from their husbands and into escape rafts. Distress flares ignited the sky in an explosion of light and sound. Violet looked out over the deck and down into the icy black water. She calmed herself with a single thought. Everyone had said the ship couldn't sink. It was too large, too well-built. But the dire reality of their predicament became impossible for Violet to deny. The Titanic was going down. And if help didn't arrive soon, it would take all of its passengers down with it. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life or death situations. This is our first of two episodes on Violet Jessup, the only woman to survive the collisions of all three White Star Line Olympic-class ships, the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParCast.com slash merch for more information. The RMS Olympic was nothing short of a modern marvel. Designed by respected Belfast shipbuilder Thomas Andrews, the ship was the first in what White Star Line hoped would be a series of three massive Olympic-class cruise liners. 
This planned trio of ships would serve as man-made islands, complete with swimming pools, classical music, and fine dining. Together, they would form a fleet of unparalleled ocean entertainment, catering to guests of all ages and wealthy and poor passengers alike. But no such fleet would come into existence without the success of the first ship, the RMS Olympic, which at the time of its maiden voyage in 1911 stood as the largest ocean liner in the world. Violet Jessup was among those handpicked to man the crew of the Olympic. At just 23 years old, Violet had already established herself as a rising star within the White Star Line's ranks. Her two years as a stewardess on the Majestic had given her a reputation as someone who could handle the arduous demands of a bustling ship. The job was far from glamorous. Throughout the week-long journey from Southampton to New York, passengers rang their service bells at all hours of the day and night. Stewardesses worked nearly round the clock, serving as a sort of personal host for entire groups of guests. Violet certainly hadn't taken the job for the money. She would be paid just two pounds, 10 pence a month, equal to 280 American dollars today. It was the sense of adventure that drove Violet, the feeling of breathlessness that carried her as a ship launched from port, slicing through the open water until the shore disappeared beyond the horizon. The first several months of Violet's time on the Olympic came and went without incident. She enjoyed the inquisitiveness of the Americans on board. Their upbeat demeanors only stoked her resentment of the snobbish British passengers. Violet had been raised by Irish immigrants in Argentina. To say there was a culture clash with the upper-class Brits would be putting it lightly. Sometime over that summer of 1911, the Olympic found itself at the center of a terrible storm. Wind and rain rocked the ship's hull as towering waves smashed over the top deck. The raging storm certainly didn't stop Violet's guests from summoning her. Bells rang incessantly, a cacophony of dings so loud it could almost drown out the roaring thunder. Violet prided herself on her ability to keep her fear buried deep below the surface. But as the Olympic plunged on through the storm, she struggled to hold her composure. It was the first time she'd experienced a storm this severe. The Olympic survived the storm just as it had been designed to. Violet's crewmates teased her relentlessly about how she'd panicked. The ship had been sold to both its crew and passengers as unsinkable, and the storm seemed to confirm that title. Just a few months later, that reputation was about to be put to the ultimate test. Bad weather was one thing, but could the Olympic survive a collision with a warship designed to sink even the unsinkable? On September 20th, 1911, the Olympic passed through the Solent, a nearly 20-mile strait that separates the Isle of Wight from mainland England. Running parallel to the Olympic was the HMS Hawk, a British protected cruiser designed to withstand shrapnel and artillery fire. As the Olympic began a wide turn to starboard, the commander of the Hawk started to panic. 
He had been caught off guard by the wide berth of the Olympic, and now his own ship was barreling directly toward the commercial cruiser. He tried to steer away, but there was no hope of avoiding a collision. The Hawk crashed head-on into the Olympic's starboard side, ripping two holes in the Olympic's hull, one above the waterline and one below. Water breached the ship's watertight compartments, flooding the lower levels. The ship would sink if it didn't get to port fast. Compounding the problem was the fact that the collision had irreversibly twisted the Olympic's propeller shaft. This meant that the crew and passengers would have to pray that the ship could maintain enough momentum to reach port without an engine. Remarkably, the Olympic reached port under its own power. But perhaps even more remarkable was the fact that no one was injured or killed in the collision. The close call actually served to bolster the Olympic's reputation as an unsinkable ship. But what exactly was it that made the Olympic and its sister ships so unsinkable? The answer, predictably, is complicated. The company responsible for the Olympic's design, Harland and Wolf, would later claim that they had never stated their Olympic-class ships were unsinkable. Instead, they believe the myth stemmed from a misinterpretation of newspaper articles written about the ships. In 1911, the Irish News, Belfast Morning News, and Shipbuilder Magazine all published articles detailing the construction of the Olympic and its sister ship, the Titanic. Specifically, it was the innovative system of watertight compartments and electronic watertight doors that led to the conclusion that the ships were practically unsinkable. A hyperbole that most of the public took literally. Ironically, those state-of-the-art watertight doors flooded during the Olympics' collision with the Hawk. An inquiry by the British Royal Navy in the months after the collision determined that yet another flaw in the Olympics' construction was actually to blame for the entire crash. A flaw in the propeller system had caused the HMS Hawk to be suctioned into the larger ship's pull. But the Olympics designers, Harland and Wolf, weren't worried about the findings. Their attention was on fixing the Olympic and getting it back out to sea as soon as possible. Because of the Olympics' massive size and unique design, Harland and Wolf had no choice but to replace the ship's broken propeller shaft with that of its unfinished sister ship, the Titanic. This would delay the Titanic's completion by at least a few months. But the delay was worth it to ensure that this next project continued the tradition of its pseudo-indestructible predecessor. Though Harland and Wolf once again offered no outright claims that the Titanic was unsinkable, White Star Lines peddled the myth to its prospective passengers, publishing a brochure which claimed that both the Olympic and the Titanic couldn't be sunk. For most of the Olympic's passengers, surviving the Hawk collision might haunt them for the rest of their days. But for Violet Jessup, the collision would only seem like a minor inconvenience compared to the harrowing journeys still to come. Coming up, we'll explore Violet Jessup's chilling journey aboard the Titanic. Now back to the story. As 1911 drew to a close, 
whispers ran through the White Star crew about the cruise line's newest ship, the Titanic. The new ship was rumored to be of a similar massive size to the Olympic, only more ostentatious in every way. Violet Jessup shared in her crewmate's excitement. After all, many of the ship's improvements had been made at the Olympic crew's behest. Naval designer Thomas Andrews had sought the crew's counsel in how to best optimize their working experience aboard the ship. He implemented their suggestions, which included personal closets for the crew members and ergonomically designed sleeping quarters. But for all its allure, Violet was on the fence about joining the Titanic's crew. She had enjoyed her year aboard the Olympic and was hesitant to leave the ship's jovial, well-mannered guests for the upscale VIPs that the Titanic sought to attract. But after months of cajoling from her friends and family, Violet finally accepted a job aboard the new vessel. The Titanic became a hot ticket among both England's elite and members of their working and middle classes. The cost of a one-way first-class ticket ran from as low as 30 pounds to as high as 870 pounds. That's equal to between $38,000 and $100,000 today. Violet Jessup stepped aboard the Titanic on April 10, 1912, the day it was set to embark upon its maiden voyage. She arrived before all of the passengers, alongside her new roommate, Anne Turnbull. Violet and Anne explored the ship, marveling at the ornate wooden carved banisters and the beautiful foreign art in the halls. They peeked at the much-advertised novelties, small private decks, lavish suites fit for royalty, and ornate ballrooms that overlooked the ocean horizon. When they arrived at their room, the two quickly discovered that the ship's luxuries extended even to the stewardesses' quarters. The small room was decked out with lace bedspreads and two separate wardrobes, an unheard-of rarity at the time. But any illusion that Violet would have time to enjoy the luxuries on board was shattered by the arrival of over 1,300 guests and over 900 crew members, totaling around 2,200 passengers. The first-class passengers boarded first. It was a regular who's who of both European and American high society. Then came the second-class passengers, who were affluent enough to afford a regular ticket, but not wealthy enough for the private bars, decks, and ballrooms in first class. Finally, the lowly third class, comprised almost entirely of non-English-speaking immigrants, was shepherded aboard. These passengers slept on the very bottom level, below even the crew. They were allowed to come aboard at a deeply discounted rate, serving as mere filler to occupy the least desirable rooms. Violet was greeting passengers below deck as the ship disengaged from its Southampton port at noon. She shepherded guests to their rooms and dealt with all manner of requests from the first-class ranks. One guest demanded that the furniture in her ornate stateroom be changed at once. Another requested that mirrors be placed on every wall of her room. Violet was so busy making absurd accommodations that she hardly noticed the havoc that was occurring on the top deck. The Titanic was facing calamity before it even reached the open sea. 
tugboats were used to tow the Titanic out of port to avoid accidentally dragging another smaller ship into the current from the propeller engines. In the Titanic's control room, Captain Edward John Smith carefully navigated the ship into the river Test. Once they were clear, he ordered the acceleration of the engines. But they weren't as clear as he thought. As the engines kicked into gear, its propellers created a powerful suction at the back end of the ship. A small passenger cruise liner called the SS New York was docked in the port behind them, just close enough to be sucked into the current. The steel hawsers that held the New York to the dock snapped in quick succession, unleashing a series of loud pops that sounded like gunfire. The New York was unmanned at the time. Without a crew to stop its drift, the smaller ship headed straight on for a collision with the back end of the Titanic. Captain Smith ordered his men to reverse the Titanic's propellers, desperate to slow the speed of the current. Frightened passengers watched on from the top deck as crewmen sprinted around, screaming to the tugboats to help stop what seemed like an inevitable collision. Miraculously, the captain of one of those tugboats, the Vulcan, managed to secure a rope connecting his ship to the New York. He throttled the tugboat, slowing the New York just enough so that another tugboat could secure a rope of its own to the New York's hull. Together, the two boats slowed the ship's drift significantly, allowing the Titanic to pass without a collision. The Titanic had narrowly avoided absolute catastrophe. Violet had been below deck, unable to witness the near disaster, but word soon spread through the crew. The Titanic was off to sea without further delay. Four days later, on the evening of April 14, 1912, Violet returned to her room after a long shift and quickly changed out of her stewardess uniform. Rather than go straight to bed, as she did most nights, Violet intended to make the most of her rare moment of free time. She had scheduled a social call with Jack Stevens, an old friend she'd worked with on another ship. Violet met Jack at the second-class bar. The two shared drinks and shared stories. There was a lot to catch up on. After Violet's long year aboard the Olympic, Jack regaled Violet with stories about his new wife and new home. They drank a toast to Jack's happiness. And to the safe passage of the Titanic. The near disaster while pulling out of port had left Violet feeling uneasy. It reminded her too much of the Olympic crash. Violet made one more stop before heading back to her room. She stepped out onto the ship's top deck and took a moment to soak in the ocean air. It was part of her nightly ritual. The peaceful rhythm of the waters settled her mind before bed. The air on this night was different, though. Wind whipped across the deck. A bone-chilling cold penetrated through Violet's heavy jacket. She wasn't long for the deck, sneaking back inside after only a few minutes. Back in her room, Violet climbed onto her top bunk and got ready for bed. She flipped through magazines and chatted for a while with her roommate, Anne. Once Anne dozed off, Violet found herself growing sleepy too. She laid back in bed, her eyes to the ceiling, the promise of sleep mere moments away. And that's when she heard it. 
Violet bolted upright in bed at the sound of a low, crunching metallic crash. The whole ship quivered as its engines went quiet. Violet didn't know what had caused the noise, but one thing was certain. It wasn't good. Violet remained silent, frozen. It was only another moment before the silence was broken by the sounds of doors opening and frightened voices rushing past. Violet peered down over the edge of her bunk. Anne stared up at her, eyes wide with terror. Anne simply said, sounds as if something has happened. Violet leapt from her bed, suddenly realizing that if something had happened, she was responsible for helping the scores of passengers staying in her section. She fumbled with the buttons of her stewardess uniform in silence, her mind racing, fears of the worst already creeping into her head. Violet and Anne startled at the sound of a knock on their door. When they pulled it open, Stanley, their bedroom steward, stood there, the color drained from his face. Stanley, ever the gentleman, asked, anything you'd like me to do for you on my way? You know the ship is sinking. The words hung in the air for a moment, not quite settling into Violet's mind. For all her trepidation about the Titanic, the notion that it could actually sink didn't compute. It was little more than a vague nightmare for Violet. But in the matter of a few hours, Violet's nightmare would turn into reality. When we come back, we'll discover how Violet Jessup managed to escape the sinking Titanic. Now back to the story. It was just after midnight on the morning of April 15th, 1912, when Violet first learned of the Titanic's impending doom. But she wasted little time springing into action. Violet was terrified, but in the face of such terror, she knew no alternative but to go about her job just as she had been trained. At that moment, work was the only thing keeping her from falling apart. Violet rushed from door to door, checking on her assigned guests and answering a never-ending stream of unanswerable questions. Ultimately, she knew just as little about the ship's collision as any of the passengers. Up in the control room, Captain Smith and his crew knew that the Titanic had hit an iceberg. The ship's steel hull was damaged in several critical areas, and as it happened on the Olympic, six of the ship's 16 watertight compartments had flooded. The unsinkable ship was descending faster than anyone had even thought was possible. Only 45 minutes after the impact, at around 12.30 a.m., the ship's builder, engineer Thomas Andrews, told Captain Smith, that the damage was irreparable. The Titanic would be underwater in less than two hours. All they could do now was evacuate. When orders from upstairs finally reached Violet, a chill went down her spine. Everyone was being ordered to the lifeboats. It was a standard precaution, of course, but even the potential of what precaution might mean was enough to frighten Violet to her core. When all the passengers in her section were gone, Violet surveyed the hall. The Titanic remained steady, and the hall looked just as it had at port before the passengers had arrived. 
it was almost peaceful. Violet returned to her room, where Anne was still waiting. Subconsciously denying the gravity of the situation, Violet began absentmindedly tidying up her room, folding her nightgown and organizing her magazines back into place. Another knock at the door snapped Violet out of her daze. Stanley entered the room, aghast at the lack of urgency. He shouted, My God, don't you realize that this ship will sink? That she has struck an iceberg? That you have to follow the rest upstairs as quickly as possible? Violet stared at him, her terror finally bubbling up to the surface. In an attempt to avoid crying, she decided to focus on something she could control. She searched her wardrobe for a coat. Stanley sarcastically suggested a hat for her journey. Violet quipped back, saying that the hat he suggested was hardly worthy of a shipwreck. Humor in the face of distressing situations has long been viewed as a coping mechanism by psychologists. But humor has also been found to serve as a stress buffer that allows people to forge connections and ascribe meaning to their lives. For Stanley and Violet, this trivial back and forth likely helped quell their nerves and emotionally connect with one another in the face of almost certain death. Consciously, the absurdity of the moment was lost on Violet. Only after she had left Stanley to head up to the top deck did she realize that she had been arguing over hats with a man who was about to die. Violet knew something was seriously wrong the moment she stepped outside. She saw a steward leaning up against a wall, a cigarette dangling from his lips as frightened guests bandied about him. Such an indiscretion would usually elicit disciplinary action from a senior crew member. But whatever professional structure had existed before the crash was already eroding. Violet watched as women and children were shepherded onto the lifeboats. Many of the non-English-speaking women sobbed in confusion as their husbands were turned away. The crew announced that the men would only be evacuated after all the women and children had been loaded in. This decision came down as a direct order from the ship's captain, Edward John Smith. He wanted to ensure the ship's physically weakest passengers, the women and children, were shepherded to safety before the able-bodied men. If the ship did fully sink into the frigid water, the stronger swimmers were more likely to survive until a rescue ship could arrive. As she moved across the deck, Violet passed Jock Hume, a violinist in one of the Titanic bands. His crew of bandmates surrounded him, instruments in hand, serenading the screaming passengers with peaceful classical offerings. It's likely that they were holding on to their assigned task, playing music, for the same reason that Violet had been so quick to launch into her stewardess duties. It was the only thing they were prepared to do in the situation, and it gave them a simple, controllable task to focus on amid the chaos. Near the lifeboats, arguments broke out over who would be allowed aboard the rafts. In the face of near-certain death, many were reverting to their most basic human instincts, fight or flight. The Titanic was carrying only 14 lifeboats, each with the capacity to hold 65 people, four collapsible lifeboats, each of which held 47, and two cutters with a capacity of 40 people. 
That meant that the boats could carry close to 1,200 passengers, leaving about half of the ship's passengers stranded. Violet watched as the first lifeboat was lowered down into the icy black ocean. The boat carried only a few passengers, alarming those still aboard the ship. The unsettling reality that the Titanic hadn't been outfitted with enough lifeboats was beginning to sink in. Emergency flares ignited the night sky in a haze of red, screeching up from the deck with a loud shriek that only added to the chaos. Violet dragged her companion, Anne, through the crowd, imploring her to stay close. Violet understood that separation at that moment could mean the difference between life and death. She had no intention of getting onto a lifeboat unless she knew Anne was safe as well. Then, a man who had been standing next to Violet suddenly launched himself off the side of the boat down into one of the descending lifeboats. This act was met with jeers from the crowd on board. There was merit in a man going down with the ship, but no dignity in a man slipping onto a boat intended for women and children. This display of chivalry on the part of the male passengers actually had little to do with intrinsic psychological motivations. At the time, women and children first wasn't a standard operating procedure. In the years that followed, psychologists would claim that the Titanic's famous evacuating orders changed the way in which crewmen viewed their responsibilities aboard a sinking ship, instilling the idea that sacrificing themselves was their duty as men. But the male passengers on the Titanic didn't all buy into that doctrine. Some men readily accepted the crew's orders, but many men had to be separated from their wives and children by the threat of physical force. It's likely that the men still on board wanted to jump into the lifeboats too, and they were outraged that one man was actually able to get away with it while the rest of them perished. They may have clung to their sense of honor as a way to make peace with their inevitable fates and as a way to explain their anger at the men who bucked orders without appearing selfish or panicked. Violet turned and watched as behind her, men began tossing things off the side of the ship. Deck chairs, rafts, anything wooden lying around. It was an attempt to provide makeshift flotation devices for the unlucky souls who didn't make it onto the lifeboats. Whatever resolve Violet had been able to maintain to this point was quickly fading. Fear was taking over. If she didn't get off the ship soon, she feared that she never would. Violet tried to calm herself, listening to the tune of Jock and the Band as they played Nearer My God to Thee but she was soon snapped from her reverie by a sudden pull at her arm. An officer she had been friendly with pulled her forward and guided her into a lifeboat. In her daze, Violet nearly tripped over the boat's oars. Anne quickly followed her into the boat. As the two tried to nestle themselves into their lifebelts, the officer who had guided them over waved down Violet. Violet stepped over to him, and before she could say a word, He shoved something into her arms and said, Look after this, will you? Looking down, Violet saw that she was holding an infant child. Objecting wasn't an option. The boat was already getting ready to descend. 
Violet gripped the baby close and took her seat. Violet looked around at the dull, shell-shocked expressions on the faces of her fellow lifeboat passengers. They had taken no relief in making it off the ship. They kept their fear just below the surface, avoiding eye contact lest anyone notice how terrified they still were. As the lifeboat descended, Violet stared up at the side of the ship and wondered if this was all a dream. The ship's decks remained illuminated, its windows alive with lights, as if at any moment the passengers on the ship might return to their rooms and resume their voyage. The boat hit the water with a loud splash, soaking Violet and startling the baby in her arms. She tried in vain to console it by rocking it gently in her arms. Violet was the oldest of nine children, so she was no stranger to babysitting. But she was unaccustomed to babysitting strangers. A fireman had come along with the women to row the boat's oars. He lit a cigarette and got to work, his face scrunching with effort as he pushed the craft away from the Titanic's sinking hull. Violet's eyes never left the ship. She counted the decks by the rows of lights, watching as they disappeared beneath the ocean, one by one. When only five decks remained above the surface, something clicked. Reality struck Violet with full force. This wasn't just another close call. The ship was sinking, with over 1,500 people still aboard. All around the lifeboat, women began to weep. Some cried silently. Others openly sobbed. Violet couldn't bring herself to cry or even to think about those who were still aboard the ship. Jack, Stanley, Jock Hume and the band. Every man on the crew would be going down with the ship. Violet closed her eyes and prayed. When she next opened her eyes, only three decks remained above water. She looked out into the horizon and saw the lights of a distant ship. Surely the ship had spotted the Titanic's rescue flares. It might reach them in time to rescue the people on board. Violet's illusions were interrupted by a thunderous roar. One of the Titanic's massive steel funnels toppled across the deck and down into the water. What remained of the ship slipped below the surface, disappearing into the darkness. Only a few seconds later, a powerful boom erupted from beneath the water. The cause of the underwater explosion is unknown, but its sound would haunt all those who survived the tragedy. Violet turned her attention back to the flickering light of the distant ship. The light was growing smaller. The ship wasn't coming to them. It was floating away. Thanks for listening to Survival. We'll be back next week to continue Violet Jessup's escape from the Titanic and her next experience aboard the HMHS Britannic. You can find all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. 
And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Daniel Ocho and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. <laughs>